That's such a good reminder that we have, we have a glorious reason to celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray, and since I'll need God's help, let's, let's ask him to, to do that. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice this morning that we have good news to share with others. We thank you that Jesus has come because it is a reason to celebrate. Lord, earlier we sung, Come, Rod of Jesse, and free your people from Satan's tyranny. And you have done this good work. And so many more need to hear the message of salvation found in Jesus. So would you, would you mark our time together with joy this morning? And would you build into us an increased confidence, even boldness, to share the good news with others, the good news about Jesus. So lead us this morning, I ask, through the power of the Spirit, in the blessed name of Jesus, amen. The incarnation was, at its core, an act of emancipation. That is, the sending of the Son was a decisive move by God, a decisive move by God to free those living under the influence, the influence and enslaving nature of sin and of Satan himself. Because the incarnation was also a declaration of peace, it was worthy of angelic proclamation. When Jesus arrived, a multitude of the heavenly host sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men. But in another sense, the incarnation was also an act of war. For the coming of the Son of God to earth decisively marked the beginning of the end of Satan's reign of terror on the earth. This is why the forces of evil opposed the arrival of Jesus so strongly. God had, God had announced that this is exactly what would happen a long time before it. In Genesis 3, God declared to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. Active opposition. Inherent hostility. Built-in animosity. Evil has been opposing God's activity in the world for a very long time. Not many days after the first Christmas morning when Jesus was presented at the temple, Simeon picked up baby Jesus and told Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many and for a sign that is opposed. Luke 2.34. In today's passage, opposition to the gospel message of the early church 
enters the story, there is immediate resistance to the apostles' proclamation of Jesus. And sadly, the same fires of opposition still rage even today. Our passage is Acts 4, verses 1 through 22. You remember that Peter and John had just healed a man who was lame from birth. And as people gathered around in Solomon's portico, Peter seized that moment and began to confront the people with the reality that they had crucified the Messiah, but God resurrected him from the dead. And as they were speaking to the people, chapter 4 and verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom his sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So Lord, bless now. Bless now your people as we sit under the authority of your word. I pray that Spirit of the living God, you would work in such a way that we would be overwhelmed by the greatness of your glory as Father, Son, and Spirit. So lead us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the truth, the truth that's at the core of our passage is that proclaiming Jesus will provoke opposition. Proclaiming Jesus will provoke opposition. The question we're looking at today is, what did this opposition look like in the context of our passage? So in order to see this more clearly, let's, let's break down our passage like this. In verses 1 through 4, those who opposed the gospel arrested the apostles commissioned by Jesus. Then, in verses 5 through 12, those that opposed the gospel message assembled to reject the name of Jesus. Then they attempted to silence the witness of Jesus. Verses 13 through 18. And finally, as the passage unfolds, we see that they have aligned themselves against the ministry of Jesus despite the fact that the people are praising God, the God of Israel, for what has happened. The place where our passage gets so good, that is if you love Jesus, is seeing the way in which every attempt to oppose Jesus completely backfires. So let's just begin then with our first section. Have you ever tried to bring about a certain result in a situation, but despite your best efforts, the situation ended up being exactly the opposite of what you intended? Maybe you planned a date or a vacation, or maybe it was a project at work, or maybe one of your family devotional times didn't go exactly as planned, because we all know family devotional times always go exactly according to plan. Back in the 1830s, the deacons of a church in Illinois found out that President Andrew Jackson would be attending their Sunday service. Now, the man who was scheduled to preach that day was a, was a traveling Methodist preacher named Peter Cartwright. The Cartwright had a fiery reputation. 
So the deacons were concerned that Reverend Cartwright might say something that would offend the president of the United States at their church. So they pulled Cartwright aside and, and asked him to be careful with his words, so not as to offend the president. So this is how Pastor Cartwright opened his sermon. I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. (laughs) You can only imagine what the deacons were thinking in that moment. In today's passage, despite the Sadducees' best efforts to oppose the message of Jesus, the gospel moves forward in a powerful way. Now, Recall that today's scene is directly connected to the previous two passages. On the way to the temple for prayer, Peter and John healed a man in the name of Jesus. That is a man who was lame. He was unable to walk from birth. And in an instant, he was leaping. He was jumping and singing and praising God. And for the first time, walking into the temple as People got wind of this. Perhaps some of them witnessed it. They started to gather in Solomon's portico where Peter and John and this healed man was there just clinging to the apostles. Peter seizes this opportunity to confront the people, telling them that the man named Jesus, whom they had killed, God raised from the dead. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, in order to get a sense of the, the power of this encounter, we need to see the, the dramatic contrast that's on display here between the Sadducees and the, the priests and the, the temple guard and the men who are proclaiming the good news about Jesus. So, verse 1, the priests were the honored Levites who were serving at the temple, performing their priestly duties. Men who had been commissioned in a way that dated back all the way to Moses, fourteen or 1,500 years prior to this. You have the captain of the temple who approaches them. He was kind of like the, the chief of police of the, of the temple guard. His responsibility was to keep law and order at the temple. He was second in command only to the high priest himself. You have the Sadducees. Now, culturally, the Sadducees were the, were the progressive elites of their day. 
They possess tremendous authority, both as religious leaders and because of their rather cozy relationship that they had with the Roman authorities. The Sadducees were educated, and they were wealthy, and they were powerful. Now, theologically, the Sadducees denied the supernatural. They were ardently opposed to the idea of a resurrection or afterlife. And they thought the Messiah was just an ideal. In other words, they denied that any specific person would fulfill the role of Messiah. Now, imagine those three theological particulars as the backdrop to what is about to be proclaimed. So these kind of powerful and refined aristocratic religious leaders walk up in, in the religious garb, the, the, maybe the modern-day equivalent of, of three-piece suits, and they find these two working-class blue-collar guys with boots on and, and coveralls, maybe pulled down to their waist and their hands are still dirty from a day's work. And they're proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. They're proclaiming that a supernatural work had been done in Jesus' name. They're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. They're offending every sensibility of the Sadducees. I can only imagine what they were thinking. Their, their self-righteousness and sneering and condemnation practically jumps off the page. Actually, Luke tells us what they were thinking. They were greatly annoyed. In other words, they were extremely disturbed or they were irritated or they were upset. Likely the fervor of the people was unsettling for them, so they wanted to shut this thing down as quickly as they could before Rome took notice. So they throw Peter and John in jail for the night. Here's the thing. As John Stott said about this verse, the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but they couldn't arrest the gospel. And here's where the opposition of the Sadducees backfires. Despite their annoyance, despite their arrests, the number of believers swelled to 5,000. And that was just the men. May I encourage you this morning to pray for boldness in seizing opportunities to talk about Jesus. Despite the fact that proclaiming Jesus will, will provoke opposition. God is so powerful that the opposition to his message ends up serving his sovereign purposes. So don't fear. God's got this. Look, if, if you're a young person and you're here, thank you so much for singing. It was a wonderful job helping us to worship. If you're here, you might find yourself at Christmas time sitting across from a relative at your table. Can I encourage you, young people, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you 
to share good news about Jesus with your relative. Be bold and trust God and do it. It doesn't matter how smart your grandpa appears to be. It doesn't matter how sweet your aunt seems. It doesn't matter how weird your uncle actually is. Every single person needs Jesus. So whatever age you are, be bold. Be bold this Christmas. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to talk to your relatives about Jesus. I mean, realize this is the time of the year when they're probably expecting you to talk about Jesus. So do it. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. So, this is a gathering of the Sanhedrin. It would have been probably less than two months prior to this when Jesus was in their midst. And largely this same group had interrogated him. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're now gathered around Peter and John, not just to interrogate, but to intimidate them. Their question is a trap. By what power or by what name did you do this? See, the Sadducees know. They know Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5. Gives them authority to execute someone who proclaims power of a false god. These unsophisticated fishermen. If we can get them to say the name of Jesus, to attribute this power to a name other than our God, we've got them. We'll shut this thing down. We'll execute them to protect the people. But Peter, filled with the omniscient, all-wise Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So rather than kind of be backed into a corner through shrewd questioning, 
filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter just steps out and stomps on the trap. And he boldly proclaims exactly who healed this man, namely Jesus of Nazareth. What's going to happen? This is not the name of Jehovah. This is not the name of Yahweh. This is a Galilean from Nazareth named Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter sets the question in its right context by pointing out that they're being questioned, they're being interrogated because of a good deed done to a crippled man. But since you asked, Peter essentially adds to those who denied the resurrection, to those who denied the supernatural, to those who denied that the Messiah would be a specific person, Peter adds, I'll tell you, I'll tell you who healed him. It was the name of Jesus. This man was supernaturally healed by the power of Jesus. The man you rejected and the man you crucified. But lest you think I'm attributing power to a name other than Jehovah, other than Yahweh, other than the God of Israel, your God and our God. Lest you think I'm doing that, let me tell you that, that your God, that our God validated this man, Jesus, whom you rejected and crucified by resurrecting him from the dead. He healed him supernaturally and God raised him. He resurrected him from the dead. And this Jesus is God's Messiah. This one you rejected, he is the Messiah promised by the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus is the cornerstone of all God's redemptive purposes. Not only is his name powerful, there is no one else. There is no other name other than Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is why we must be bold. We must be bold, though proclaiming Jesus will, will provoke opposition. We must be bold because there is no other name there is no other name powerful enough to save someone from their sins. There is no other way to be saved from sin. Whether you are here or, or whether you're watching over the live stream, there is no other name by which you might be saved other than Jesus. And that's true for others. So we have to tell them. Or else how are they going to be saved? We must, we must engage others about Jesus. Don't be afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. Look at this scene the smartest, wealthiest, most powerful people set a trap to those who are witnessing about Jesus to kill them. And it backfired because of the sovereign power 
of God. Because the Holy Spirit took the lead and he blew up the plan. He prompted Peter to just state the truth. The problem for the Sadducees was that in contrast to them rejecting Jesus, God had received Jesus. And he had resurrected him and he had exalted him and so doing bestowed upon Jesus all power and authority so that at the name of Jesus, all people, all creatures on heaven and earth and under the earth would acknowledge that Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, don't be afraid. Look what happened here. The Holy Spirit made the truth crystal clear. So this Christmas, if the Holy Spirit prompts you, just say whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to say and trust God for what happens next. Now, what happens next in our story is that those who were opposing the message about Jesus, they were utterly astonished. Or to say it away, another way, they had confronted those who were witnessing to the power of Jesus. The reason they confronted them was so that the witness to Jesus would be silenced. But they themselves ended up speechless. When they witnessed the clarity and power and boldness of those who had been with Jesus. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they, they had nothing to say in opposition. That's amazing. Brothers and sisters, since Jesus is no longer walking around on earth at the moment, rather, gloriously, he is seated on the throne of heaven at this moment. The question becomes, if we're going to be with Jesus, like the apostles were, how can that happen? How might the courage and clarity and character of Jesus be reflected in us? There's only one way, and that is we must commune with Jesus through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we, as the followers of Jesus, might spend so much time in the presence of Jesus in his word, and that we might be so refined by the Holy Spirit as we spend time with Jesus and with his beloved bride, that we would begin to talk like Jesus and act like Jesus and think like Jesus and see and care and love and give and go and tell and help and lead and serve and share and pray like Jesus. And as we do, may others take note that we ourselves have been with Jesus so that they might turn to Jesus and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And however imperfectly reflected in the lives of his 
followers, namely of, of you and of me. The place this gets sticky, uh, the challenge is that sometimes we realize that our own hearts are opposing Jesus. And so our lives are not reflecting the glory of Jesus, but, but maybe we're annoyed by the truth. Or maybe we realize we, we're now aligned against the ministry of Jesus. So rather than reflecting the glory of Jesus, we're in some measure obscuring it. It's at these moments in our lives when, when we realize that, that we have failed precisely in this area. Perhaps we wonder if God still loves us, or if we think He's got to be disappointed. He's got to be just shaking His head. It's at this moment we may need to remember to, to preach the same gospel to ourselves that we desire to share with others. As Dane Ortland has said, the evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his life. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned, eternally in your place. At, at, at the very moment we are tempted to despair... Brothers and sisters, let the goodness of the gospel and the gentle and lowly heart of Christ towards sinners, let his humble heart humble yours. For though God himself opposes the proud, he gives grace. So beleaguered soul, rejoice this morning. Because God loves to give grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5. Five, in your Christ-reflecting humility, turn from your sin and run to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in your time of need. Oh, that the Sanhedrin would have humbled themselves at this moment when they were confronted with the truth. Luke says they were astonished. But sadly, they doubled down on their opposition. They huddled up together. What are we going to do about this? They decided to warn them. Verse 18, they warned them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's not going to work. It didn't work for followers of Jesus then, and I promise you, no matter what happens, that is not going to work for the followers of Jesus here. So Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This describes the heart of evangelism. This, this is the reason that we proclaim Jesus. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Imagine what they saw and heard. Imagine the conversations that they had had privately with Jesus. I'm sure there were times where they were brought to conviction just because Jesus looked right at them. They'd handed out bread and fish after they had taken just a few loaves and fishes from a boy and basket after basket after basket after basket, they handed out their own hands. They're in the middle of the storm. Here comes Jesus walking on the sea. Imagine what they had seen and heard. John tells us in his gospel, if I wrote down everything, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. They can't not talk about what they had seen and heard. But what about us? We have God's word. What you see about God in his word is what you will say about God in the world. The apostles could not not talk about the reality of what they had seen and heard about Jesus. He was awesome. But the same thing is true for us because we have this revelation about Jesus. We have the record from the eyewitnesses. So that we too can fall in love with Jesus and see the greatness of his glory and be humbled by this man. He was and he is too wonderful. He's too creative. He's too merciful. He's too majestic. He's too pure. He's too holy. He's too righteous. He's too faithful. He's too powerful. He's too gracious. He's too glorious not to talk about him. This always has been and it always will be the primary fuel for evangelism. In that way, we can't not talk about Jesus. So especially at this time of the year, take a moment to marvel at the reality that this God, the God that is being described in our passage, came to us to save us from our sins. What a miracle. And then tell someone else about that. Rather than just reveling in it yourself, share that good news. Though the religious leaders aligned themselves against the ministry of Jesus, that is, they rejected it. Their opposition backfired because the people received it with great joy and were praising God for what had happened. Verse 21, this is the opposite of what they want to happen. They're opposing the message about Jesus, because they're trying to shut it down. They want it silence, and all they hear is, praise God! Praise God! Praise 
God. The opposition backfired entirely. If the people hadn't praised God, the rocks would have cried out. So this morning, let your souls rejoice. Just look into God's word from 2,000 years ago and let your souls rejoice with those who were rejoicing with the man whose life was changed forever by the powerful name of Jesus. For our last verse, lest we forget, there's a man standing there alongside the apostles who, since the time he was born, he couldn't walk. And now more than 40 years later, he is jumping and singing and praising God and walking into the temple to worship him. So when we look at this man and, and we see his healing, we recognize that this is a powerful inbreaking of the eternal kingdom of God, the world as it was meant to be, and the way the redeemed world will be forever. Full healing, body and soul, is coming, brothers and sisters. That glorious and that everlasting day is coming. But notice, notice something else about this story. This man's story doesn't just remind us that full healing, body and soul, is coming. That it does. But I want you to think about his story. In light of the frustration and the depression and the isolation and the discouragement that many have experienced over these last several months. And I want you to notice this scene that starts in about chapter 3 and verse 1 and continues to the end of our passage today. And when you look at this man, notice his unbridled and his unashamed, his unspeakable joy. For this man's story doesn't just represent the inbreaking of kingdom healing body and soul. His life is a window into the perhaps almost unimaginable reality of the perfectly pure and unhindered and unfiltered and uninhibited joy that will be ours in the kingdom of God forever. So not just a day of everlasting healing body and soul is coming, a day of everlasting and all-encompassing joy is coming. May our glorious God use this morning, this, this very morning, this passage to prepare our hearts to celebrate this Christmas, to celebrate this morning as we worship God and to celebrate as we gather together to worship Jesus for coming to earth even in the midst of this brokenness. Perhaps there could be no stronger testimony to the world, the entire world, at this moment than the joy, the unhindered joy of believers because Jesus has come. Therefore, joy to the world and joy to the church this morning because Jesus the Savior, he has come and Jesus our Savior is coming 
again. Praise be to the glorious Father. Praise be to His joyful Son. And praise be to the infinitely powerful Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your brilliance, the brilliance of your plan of salvation. Thank you for the way that you sustain the world. Thank you for the way that you sustain us as believers. Thank you for the way that you preserve our faith in you, the faith that you have given us by grace. Thank you by doing so through the the beauty and the power of what we behold in your word. Spirit of the living God, thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for recalibrating our hearts and opening our eyes so that we might see with more clarity the reality of our present condition, which is that we have every reason to be joyful even now, and that one day we will be joyful forever. So encourage us with these truths, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.